welcome back for the very fourth time to 22-2s, a Discord and Rhyme miniseries where we geek out about sequencing and talk about our favorite track twos. I'm Rich Bennell. And I'm Amanda Rogers. So we got some more email about this series. Uh, so, so this series inspired one of our listeners to send in their own list of 22 track twos, which is amazing. I love it. It was really cool. Yeah, there were some songs I really loved on it, like uh, Step Step Right Up by Tom Waits from Small Change. Mm-hmm. Step right up. Step right up. Everyone listening at home, shoot us an email at discordpod at gmail.com or reply to us on Twitter at discordpod. Let us know your favorite track twos and maybe we'll compile it into a special listener curated Spotify playlist. That sounds like fun to we me. We should. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So uh, before we get started, Amanda, what say you and sequencing? Is the value of a good track two something you've given much thought? Not a whole lot until you first brought it up and then I realized hey, he's got a point. (laughs) And I've come to think of it kind of mathematically. Like I liked what John had to say about track two being like the thesis statement of the album. I I think of it more as like track one is a point, but you need two points to make a line, right? So track two is your second point. And then you can kind of see what direction the album is going to go in. This does, it's not a perfect metaphor because, you know, with three points, you have a plane and it might turn into something completely different. But often by the second song, you can kind of tell which direction the album's going to take you in. Yeah, I like that. I was, I was giving some thought into like, you know, what makes a good track seven or a good track eight? And that's a much, much harder <laughs> question because uh, the way I think of it is that like by that point in an album, you know, the law of chaos theory has, uh, has, has stepped in and like, there are just so many mm-hmm. ways an album could have gone by that point. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that has changed quite a bit since CDs came in because when there were two sides on an album, you had two chunks yeah. to sequence. And I think that made it a little easier because, I mean, there's a structure on each side usually. But now when you've got like 12 or however many songs in a row, that makes the back half of it kind of a little harder to do, I think. That's true. Yeah. It, I, this is a very like CD era way of thinking about it. We're even using the term track mm-hmm. instead of song. Uh, and with yeah. and with like vinyl, with LPs, you know, the the song that kicks off side two is a really, really important track. And that's like almost not even a consideration mm-hmm. for CDs. Right. So what I'm getting at is that sequencing is awesome and important. Yep. Well, uh, let's get started with uh, with your first two. What do you have for us, Amanda? Sure. Well, my first one, because three hours was not anywhere near long enough to talk about Genesis on this podcast, and also because you weren't there. Uh, I've chosen their second song from their self-titled album from 1983, That's All. All right. I love this one. Just as I thought it was going all right, I found out I'm wrong when I thought it was right. It's always the same, it's just a shame, that's all. I could say day and you'd say night, tell me it's black when I know that it's white. Always the same, it's just a shame, and that's all. It's always the same, it's just a shame, that's all. 
way Phil sings the first verse in like a quieter, calmer register. Yeah. And then he gets angry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people rate that album very highly, including me. And the first couple of tracks on there are a great one-two punch. Uh, the first song on there is Mama, which is growly and mean and honestly one of the scarier Genesis songs. Now listen to me. And then you get That's All, which is much more of a bop, but it still has its growly and mean elements, especially later in the song, like Rich just pointed out. Honestly, it's a pretty dark album, much more so than Invisible Touch that we talked about before. And these first two songs point in that direction very nicely. Like later on, you have a song about Hitman. And <laughs> it's it's kind of a dark and scary album. And it's so good. Uh, fun fact about That's All, this was Phil's attempt to drum like Ringo. Oh. Yeah. It, you you can't hear that so much in the clip that we just heard, but later in the song, it's more obvious. He is a huge fan of Ringo's drumming, which makes sense because Ringo Starr and Phil Collins are two of the best rock drummers ever. And I think he did a pretty good job of it. And also, I noticed just recently the structure of the song is very similar to Hello Goodbye. With the opposites and the contradictions. Yeah, yeah, now that, now that you point that out, yeah. So I wonder if that was deliberate too, I don't know for sure. But I feel like even the people who still insist on disliking Colin's era Genesis still probably like That's All. Because, I mean, it's I can kind of get people's objections to Invisible Touch, but this is such a good song. I mean, seriously, look me in the face and tell me honestly that you don't like That's All. It's just an amazing song. I don't like That's All. No, I love That's All. You are lying. <laughs> I'm, I was definitely <laughs> lying right there. Yeah, though, uh, you mentioning it coming right after Mama in the track listing. I was just looking up the chart statistics, and I think it's funny that in the UK, Mama was the huge hit. Like, it hit mm-hmm. number four, and That's All was just a top 20 hit, whereas it's it's the reverse in the US. Yeah, and, uh, I just read uh, Mike Rutherford's memoir uh, when I was researching for the Genesis episode, and he pointed that out in his book, and his theory which is something he'd mentioned several times in the book, was that Genesis in general and Mama specifically was just too weird for the United States. We didn't get it, so it didn't get any airplay. And I was like, excuse you, I used to hear it all the time. But it is true that it didn't do as well on the charts as some of their other singles. Yeah, I feel like now that uh, you know Gen Z loves In the Air Tonight, there, there could stand to be a Mama renaissance. They would love that song too. I think they would. Yeah, Phil Collins has come back around to being cool with the next generation after us. And I love that. I think that's great. Yeah, well, so I'm glad that I get a, at least a brief chance to talk about Genesis because, uh, well, I, I couldn't add to anything you all didn't already say about Trick of the Tail or Invisible Touch. I have no original thoughts on those albums at all. But the 1983 self-titled album, it's it's either my favorite Genesis album or it's in my top three. And 
uh, I, I'm glad I get a little piece of it to talk about. And uh, That's partly the, why I picked this song, because I know you love this album a lot. And I wanted to let you talk about <laughs> well, it. Well, thank you. I, I, I picked my choices because I knew you loved them as well. So we were very Aww. courteous to each other. Yeah, but the, the, the self-titled album is like, for me, it's the perfect balance to me between their pop and their weird prog electronic sides. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, part of that is the way they open the album with something as primal and unconventional as Mama. And, and then they use That's All to kind of release the tension, a chance for the listener to breathe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it also kind of forms a little pop valley on the album because it comes right before the 11-minute-long Home by the Sea suite. Yeah. Like the the first half of the album is honestly pretty strange, even by the standards of like late mid to late seventies Genesis. Mm-hmm. It is, but even so, I heard most of the songs on that album on the radio at one time or another. Even Home by the Sea, not second Home by the Sea, <laughs> but the first part I've of it. I've only heard that's all on the radio. Oh no, oh, no, really? I, I've heard that's all, and I've heard taking it all too hard on the radio. Mm-hmm. So those do those do seem like the obvious choices for like American radio. Yeah. And I like taking it all too hard. I think that's a, Me too. it's not as good as um, throwing it all away, but it's way better than In Too Deep. Yeah, I, I like basically every song on the album except for Illegal Alien, which is just tough for me to love in oh, any form. God. No, not only is it annoying, it's offensive and stupid. Yeah. But good choice with this one. I actually, I actually one time with uh, with my wife and I went out to kind of a stressful dinner in New York and we decided that we just had to go do some karaoke afterwards uh, together <laughs> alone. And uh, I was still pretty stressed out when we entered the room, but I decided to pick That's All and to sing. And that immediately just made me feel better for the rest of the night. That is an excellent choice for a song to sing when you're feeling stressed and anxious. But should we move on to my first choice? Yes, we should. Okay, well, like I said, I calibrated my choices to be songs that you love. And this is Madonna's Open Your Heart from True Blue. Yeah, it is. Watch out.
honestly isn't much of an album artist, which is one of the reasons we haven't really gotten around to covering her on the show. Uh, and I mean that in terms of like carefully, deliberately sequencing the ordering of the songs on her releases. Uh, mm-hmm. But in the case of True Blue, sometimes the best way to sequence an album is just to fill it with bangers. And the album is nine tracks long and it had five U.S. top five singles, including Open Your Heart, which topped the charts. Woo! So even if sequencing wasn't much of a consideration for True Blue, the song is a really strong, confident track, too. Uh, And it feels like the album kind of bursting open after the opener, which is Papa Don't Preach. And it opens Mm -hmm. the album on a very stern note. you but I've, I've personally never really cared much for that song what papa don't preach yeah i think it's fine but open your heart is about like 10 times better as far as i'm concerned i agree but it's hard to compare them because they're so different yeah it's true they're both better than track three the james cagney tribute white heat yeah that's it a nice gold medal for the cup only maybe he's gonna get it sooner than he thinks yeah liked that one, but I never understood it. I still yeah. don't really. <laughs> I actually kind of love that song, but it, there is just, it's just a big like, why is this here? Why did you record this song? Yeah. I guess he just died and there was like, yeah, and it served as a sort of tribute to him, but still like why on a Madonna album? It was so weird. Anyway, I don't have much else to add about Open Your Heart specifically as a track two, but the song for me has always kind of encapsulated what Madonna brings to her songs, whether or not she writes them. So I have a clip of the original demo for Open Your Heart from songwriter Peter Raffelson. Raffelson? Raffel? I don't know. But anyway, it was intended for a singer more in the vein of Cyndi Lauper. Speaking of karaoke. (laughs) So I have no doubt that Cyndi Lauper would have done a fine job with that demo, Mm -hmm. but Madonna and her co-producer Gardner Cole uh, really gave the song a lot of personality and energy just right from right from the beginning with that. Watch out. Yeah. Uh, To the point where it almost transforms into a whole new song. But yeah. yeah. And those lyrics that we just heard aren't in the Madonna song, (laughs) which is good because they're dumb. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they did a lot of like reprocessing of it to turn it into the mega hit, you know, today. But yeah, yeah this is one of my favorite Madonna songs. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you are absolutely correct that Madonna is not an albums artist. Uh, John and I talked about this when we did a Patreon episode about greatest hits collections. We both agreed that uh, the Immaculate Collection is one of the ones that everybody should own. I agree. Because her albums are really killer singles and kind of boring filler. I will say that True Blue is the exception to that in that the filler songs are pretty good. 
not anywhere near as good as the singles are still a pretty big divide, but I like them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, and it, this could be nostalgia talking though, because true blue was one of my formative albums when I was a kid, like right around the same time as hysteria and we can't dance. And it's still, it's the only Madonna album I ever feel like listening to aside from her hits collections and open your heart is like you said, it's like, the archetypal Madonna song. Mm-hmm. One other thing I've noticed is that this is one of those songs where if you were to swap the genders, it suddenly gets really creepy. Oh. Don't try to run. I can keep up with you. Well, this one has that kind of the sort of <laughs> creepy like peep show inspired video too. It's very strange. Yeah. Anyway, what's your second track two you've chosen for us today, Amanda? Uh, it's a little bit different from what we just heard. <laughs> <laughs> this is Eulogy by Tool. tattle on Amanda now. She was enthusiastically lip syncing to that chorus. <laughs> sure was. Oh, Tool. <laughs> this song like genuinely kicks ass. But the thing about Tool is they take themselves extremely seriously and are therefore really easy to make fun of. So it's a little hard to resist, even though I do genuinely like them a lot. Uh, this was track two on Anima, which came out in 1996. And this is the best song on the album. And that is saying a lot because the album is 77 minutes long. Oh, yes, it is. Because it was 1996. (laughs) This song takes up about eight and a half of those minutes. And it all sounds basically like the clip you just heard, which starts about two and a half minutes in because the intro and the buildup for this one is huge because this is a prog metal band after all. And... This is a song where I feel like you can really hear their King Crimson influence. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they toured with King Crimson briefly, and they've been very open about how much they've drawn from that, particularly the King Crimson album Red. So I talked to her a little bit earlier about uh, how, you know, the first two tracks, you know, form a line. And Anima is an album that just goes in a straight line the whole way through. Uh, If you like how Eulogy sounds, you're pretty much going to enjoy the whole album because it all basically sounds like that. And I don't mean that as a diss. If you like the Tool sound, then there's 77 minutes of it for you there on Anima. Uh, If you like that song, but you're not sure you want to you know, sit through all of that, then listen to uh, Stink Fist, the first track, which is very good, Eulogy, and 46 and 2. Uh, 
those are sort of the anima's best of, and that'll give you the idea. Yeah, it hadn't even occurred to me, but yes, a gigantic multi-part prog epic is definitely a way to do a track two. Uh, the yeah. one that springs to mind immediately is Take a Pebble by ELP, which uh, oh, you yeah, all talked yeah, yeah. about. Oh, yeah, 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 that's track two. Yeah, way back in episode seven. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I didn't really think about longer songs uh, for this for these episodes because when I was sequencing the original compilation, the ability to fit it onto a single CD was a priority. Uh, plus, mm-hmm. on top of that, I had to fit in 22 tracks, so I focused on shorter punchier songs. So I'm, I'm glad you threw this into yeah. diversify it a little bit. Yeah. You can't have one song hogging up eight and a half minutes if you've got, if you have to put 22 songs on there. Yeah. But for a Spotify playlist, go nuts. Oh yeah. yeah bring on the epics. Uh, so yeah, I listened mm-hmm. to all 77 minutes of anima for this recording because as producer Mike told us, Tool really like filling up the whole CD. They sure do. I, I think I heard, <laughs> I think I've heard lateralists as well just once. And yeah, as too. I recall, it's the same sort of deal. Yeah, it was yep. it was funny being on track ten and realizing that I still had three epics left to go, uh, uh-huh. including the thirteen minute <laughs> closer, third eye. It, it kind of took me back to our Dream Theater episode because that's exactly how I felt listening to that album oh, and yeah. like getting to the eleven minute closer. Yeah, Tool's vocals are a lot better than Dream Theater's though. Oh, absolutely! Oh, it's not even close. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't really say that Eulogy is the epic of Anima rather than an epic on Anima, but it's it's probably my favorite on the album. And I, I, I agree. Oh, yeah. I agree. It's super King Crimson inspired. I, I haven't listened to as much Crimson as some people, some other people on the podcast, but it reminds me of something from like Lark's Tongues and Aspic, like the, the huge mm-hmm. build on the first song. Yeah, you're right. This is very Lark's tonguesy. And Tool, yeah, they did tap King Crimson to open for them at one point. I think that's the funny part, that mm-hmm. King Crimson were the opener, and a lot of people going there to see Tool like, had no idea who they were watching. And it was like yeah. one of the foundational bands of Tool sound. No big deal. Uh-huh. I guess as a track two, it gives you a good sense of what to expect later on the album while you still have that early album energy perking you up. Like, I I have no idea how I would react to Eulogy if it were like, say, track 12, if I would just be really tired instead. But I like it where it is. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't lie to you about what Anima sounds like. No, it doesn't at all. (laughs) They're very upfront. But yeah, this is for sure the best song on the album. Okay, my second choice. This is an artist we have talked about before. This is the B-52s with 52 Girls. All right, we're heading back in the other musical direction now.
talked about the B-52's album Wild Planet back in episode 24, and the only regret I have about that episode is that I think we mentioned 52 Girls something like three or four times without clipping it. Uh, so here it is, one of oh, my yeah. favorite B-52 songs. So this song first came to my attention when the B-52s graciously included it on their compilation Time Capsule Songs for a Future Generation, even though it wasn't mm-hmm. even remotely a hit for them. And it was also track two on that comp. And uh, my theory for why they included it is that it's such a textbook example of Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson's interplay as vocalists and what they bring to the band. Yes. So on their debut album, the song comes right after the super spacey opener, Planet Claire. She came from Planet Claire. And you know how the BC-52s were in the Flintstones movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. Planet Claire is kind of their Jetsons theme, on the other hand. Like the, you know, the meet (laughs) Fred Schneider opening credits (laughs) uh, before the album puts you like, you know, it just settles you on a nearby planet for 52 Girls, which is a much more grounded song, but also feels completely alien and uncanny. And it's not one of the showier B-52 songs, but it's always been one of my favorites, like top five easily. Yeah, I really love it too. I, I don't think the B-52s invented the bop, but they perfected it. <laughs> the song does bop. <laughs> it does. Uh, the first two words I always think of to describe the B-52s are fun and weird. And the first two tracks on their first album are both very fun and very weird. So... Yeah, they, again, they show you right off the bat, this is what we sound like. This is what we're going to do. We've got these two really amazing vocalists and that wild surfy guitar. Mm-hmm. And wait till you hear our other vocalist. <laughs> you know, This is one of those songs where if you if you like the B-52s, you're going to like 52 Girls. Is that why there's 52 Girls? Is because that is the number in their name? That's what I was wondering because they definitely don't name 52 girls in this song. Uh, I, th- no. I think it might be like the 52 girls, like all the B-50, all the girls in the B-52's life oh. because Kate and Cindy name check okay. themselves in the middle of the song. They do. Well, as I said, if you want to hear more about the B-52s, we talked about them in great detail a couple of a couple of years ago. Anyway, so what is your third and final track to, Amanda? My third one is Sailing to Philadelphia by Mark Knopfler with an assist from noted lady killer James Taylor. I am Jeremiah Dixon. I am a Jody boy. Glass of wine with you, sir, and the ladies I'll enjoy. Old Durham and Northumberland Is measured up by my own hand It was my fate from birth To make my mark upon the earth He calls me Charlie Mason Stargazer am I It seems that I was born to chart the evening sky they cut me out for baking bread But I had other dreams instead This baker's boy from the West Country Would join the Royal Society We are sailing to Philadelphia A world away from the cold tide 
sailing Philadelphia to draw the line the Mason Dixon line oh that line it's pretty important. Oh, so this officially brings us to 23 twos. This is now the increasingly misnamed 22 twos. Oh, it's like the Hitchhikers trilogy yep. that has five books in it. <laughs> uh, six now. <laughs> oh, are there six now? Yeah, you're yeah, right. You're right. Yeah, because there's the one that Douglas Adams didn't write. Yeah. I haven't read it. Have you? No, I stopped with Mostly Harmless, which was uh, already not a great way to conclude the increasingly misnamed trilogy. I agree. So Sailing to Philadelphia, on the other hand, is track two, the title track, and was also a single, which I feel like is kind of hard to do. Uh, I never actually heard this on the radio, but I think you have, right? Uh, so when you put this song on the list, I thought I knew it from KFOG, which was the which is the recently defunct radio station out of San Francisco. Uh, but the song mm-hmm. they actually played a lot was the opener, the really Dylan-esque oh, okay. lead single, What It Is. Drink dens are spilling out, staggering in the square. Lads lasses fall about and a crackling in the air. Then around the dungeon doors, the shutters and the queues. Everybody's looking for somebody's arms to fall into. That's what it is. And this was released as a single, and I was kind of surprised to find that out because it doesn't sound like one, but I first heard it on a Best of Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler compilation, so I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, This is a duet with James Taylor, uh, as I mentioned, who we talked about a lot, surprisingly, back on our Joni Mitchell episode. And my Lady Killer crack was a joke from that that we've kept alive among us, but I don't expect (laughs) anyone else to remember. (laughs) Uh, You got to remember all of our jokes, listeners. Yeah, all all of them them ever going back our whole three years of existence. So, yeah, James Taylor took some time out from Breaking Hearts and sang this song with Mark Knopfler. And I think their voices go together just beautifully. Uh, The song itself fits firmly within the album's themes of traveling the past and traveling in the past. Almost all the songs fall into those categories. Um, Was inspired by the novel Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon, which is supposedly about the surveyors who drew the Mason-Dixon line in the 1760s. But I got about half a sentence into the book and failed. (laughs) So I cannot confirm that, but it seems plausible. Yeah, after all her favorite fruit (laughs) from uh, Camper Van Beethoven's Key Lime Pie, this is the second song we've covered that's based on a Thomas Pynchon novel none of us have read. I'm, you know what? I'm shocked anybody has read his books and understands them enough to write songs about them. I've finished V and I think that one's really good. But yeah, I've been told that Mason and Dixon is his toughest novel too, like even tougher than Gravity's Rainbow. I heard that too after I tried to read it and I believe it. Yeah, I I find it tougher as time goes on to set aside like the brain space for those 800 page postmodern tomes. I already didn't have that much Mm -hmm. patience for them in the first place. No, I don't think I've ever had any. So anyhow, this is not actually a book podcast, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but the song that came out of that incomprehensible novel is absolutely gorgeous. And the second verse that we didn't clip is a really beautiful illustration of the ideas of present reality versus potential. And that I think is an idea that still resonates very deeply now. Uh, this it's a gorgeous song. The whole album is great. I really, really recommend it. If you like Mark Knopfler's singing and his guitar playing, which you should, because they're both stellar, 
you should hear Sailing to Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a good album. It has some uh, like dabblings in like 2000s era electronic throughout, some of which are good, some mm-hmm. of which are bad. But overall, I thought it was a really good album. Yeah, there are some clunkers on there, but yeah, overall, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as for this song, I, well, I like that Knopfler was really taken by the Mason-Dixon story. I think part of that was because Jeremiah Dixon came from Northeast England uh, like he did. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, like I, I love how completely uninterested in being hip Mark Knopfler is with this song, like yeah. doing like this U S history story song in 2000 featuring James Taylor, who, who, by the way, I had no idea was going to pop up on the song. He just showed up and I'm like, Oh, Hey, it's James Taylor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, lady killer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I, and I love the way that they emphasize a Mason Dixon line in case you didn't get it. Like they're teaching children around a campfire. It's just such a disarmingly square song. It is. It is. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And so much of my musical upbringing was drenched in irony. And uh, like, I don't have a lot of songs like this in my collection, honestly. So, yeah, it's it's refreshing to hear something so sincere, even if it's kind of a mm-hmm. song for grandpas. Yeah, it, it's very sincere and very pretty. And I think you're right about... The geographic connection. Um, and he mentions uh, at the beginning, I am a Geordie boy. A Geordie is a, a, the nickname for somebody from Northeast England. And he sang about that in a different song called Why I Man, which isn't on this album, but is really, really good. And that's that's a theme that he comes back to a lot is the idea of place, like clear back to his Dire Straits songs. It's, it's, it's a pretty common idea for him to explore. Okay, it is time for my third and final pick. I have been waiting to talk about this song forever on this show. This is Alone by Heart. Yes. I hear the ticking of the clock I'm lying here The room's pitch dark I wonder where you are tonight No answer on the telephone So many off-key karaoke renditions of that chorus. <laughs> yeah, so, so without realizing it, I picked two songs for this episode that topped the charts in the U.S. So you, you got to go with the classics sometimes. Yeah. So this is the first song I picked that isn't from a particularly good album. Mm-hmm. So Alone comes from Hart's revitalized, more corporate rock 80s career. And if you subscribe to our Patreon, Amanda and I did a mini-sode about their totally banging 1985 self-titled album. Mm-hmm. We can- This song comes from the 1987 follow-up Bad Animals, which starts with a few really great singles, but eh, you don't really need to hear the rest. No. So the album starts with Who Will You Run To, which is an honest-to-God, really good Diane Warren song that kind of... It's great. Yeah, it kind of sets out a banner for the album for me, and there's some cool, like, computer animation in the video. You found a new world, and you want to taste it. 
And then Alone shows up and the fireworks really go off. Yeah. So Alone is actually a cover of a 1983 song by songwriters Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who recorded it under the name I-10. And I have a clip of that one. So you can hear Ooh. two songs in this episode being sung by men that were late, that were later uh, sung much better by women. Yeah, it originally sounded kind of like Foreigner. Yes, it does. Or REO Speedwagon, that entire yeah. like, brand of early 80s power ballad. Yeah, which I like. Yeah, but the, the original is another case like the Madonna song where it was, uh, you know, an okay song, but just waiting for the right vocalist to show up and launch it into space. Mm-hmm. I, I think what seals the deal with this song is that it's so compact, like just three minutes, 39 seconds, and you're out. Uh, you mm-hmm. expect a song like this to be excessive, but they just wisely make their point and then get out instead of blustering on with the chorus until the song is like six minutes long. Yeah. And on Bad Animals, there aren't that many other good songs. But after the song ends, you've got a lovely little Nancy Wilson song rocker called There's the Girl, uh, which she wrote with mm-hmm. Holly Knight. Uh, and that's and that song is a really good aperitif. I can tell back off alone rules <laughs> this is it, it's like peak 80s heart it's not as good as these dreams but it's in the same yeah. it, it's in the same area uh yeah the first track on there that rich mentioned who will you run to is actually one of my favorite heart songs so i mean you can imagine my shock when i found out diane warren wrote it it's crazy And yeah, this is an album where the first two points seem to form a pretty solid line, but then it it just veers off in a totally different direction after There's the Girl. And it's just, this is crazy front-loaded. I really like the first three songs and the rest of it is completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So yeah, as, as the whole track two concept goes, this is a great one. It's just a shame that the rest of the album doesn't live up to it. Have you seen Heart Live? Have we, did we talk about this in the Patreon Yeah, episode? I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, a couple of years ago, they toured with Sheryl Crow and El King. It was an amazing show. Oh, cool. Yeah, I saw them in 2002 at the Mountain Winery in the Silicon Valley, and they, they did a pretty good cover of Battle of Evermore by Led Zeppelin. They did that at my show, too, and they also covered uh, Your Move by Yes. Okay, I guess that brings an end to this miniseries. Uh, just gets funnier every time. <laughs> I see what you did there. That was a really fun little experiment. Yeah. So far, we've been seeing pretty solid download numbers for this series. So if people were into it, we might bring it back in the future or something mm-hmm. that geeks out about album construction in a similar way. And like I said earlier, if you have your own favorite track twos, email us at discordpod at gmail.com or just contact mm-hmm. us on social media. And yeah, we uh, that sounds like fun, putting together a, a listener curated like whole playlist of track twos. Why not? Yeah, I agree. I agree. So if you have a track two that you think is really good, tell us. And if you like this kind of episode where we, you know, pick a bunch of songs ourselves and make our own little compilation, we've got a few others of that kind over on our Patreon feed if you want to go sign up there. Yeah, we've been increasingly doing these kind of episodes on Patreon because it's a nice way to break from the album format of our podcast. Yeah. 
So as far as for what's up next for these off-week episodes, we're going to be going back to compilations. So our next comp is, now that's what I call music, not the U.S. series that started in the late 90s. We're going to be talking about the original British compilation from 1983. Which, yes, exists. That was a surprise to me, too. Yeah, if you're a U.K. listener, you're like, duh, of course that compilation exists. <laughs> but uh, it, it became more of a known quantity in the U.S. in the late 90s, and it, ha- it has, like, you know, Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 1983 compilation started the entire franchise, the entire global franchise, and it has a whole bunch of fun songs that both were and weren't big hits on our side of the ocean. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Anyway, expect that in about a month. And in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. The number of the day I present to you the number of the day is... Ooh. So that's the number.